Good morning. So we are coming to the end of Acts. We are almost there. This is the second to last sermon, the penultimate. Uh, and I, I guess you would say that I'm slowing down as we approach the end, becoming a little more reflective on where we've been over the course of the past year, what we've studied, what we've seen in the, the Acts of the Apostles. Of course, I've tried to argue that in many ways it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Has, he's gone on across uh, the, the globe, starting in Jerusalem and going off to now eventually getting to Rome or the ends of the earth, so to speak. And so Paul is approaching that eternal city, that eternal city, though it's not in itself eternal, of course, it's described as such, but he uh, is part of a greater city, the city of God, the true eternal city. But here is Paul, almost there. Uh, and so we pick up in chapter 28, uh, verses 11 to 15, as he approaches the city. So let's go ahead and turn to God's word. Just a few short verses here. Verses 11 to 15 is found for you in your, your, your bulletins. You can also find it in your Bibles. Acts chapter 28, 11 to 15. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island that was Malta, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and, one, and on the second day we came to uh, Puteoli, where we found brothers and were in, invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The word of the Lord. And then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you uh, would uh, encourage our hearts as we study your word this morning, as we hear how Paul himself was encouraged as he moved towards Rome. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the glory of Christ more clearly. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've already mentioned, Paul's in his last leg of the journey to Rome. He's been trying to get Rome to Rome for what seems like a long time, actually about 10 chapters worth of time in, the, in terms of uh, the book of Acts. It's been years, uh, years in this process. He started way back. He was in, um, he was in Greece uh, when he first, uh, his spirit was first burdened to go to Rome and then was confirmed by the Lord to go to Rome and then was challenged uh, by all the circumstances surrounding that uh, journey to Rome through Jerusalem where he was arrested, uh, where there was a plot to kill him, where he was eventually put on a ship and sent uh, to, towards Rome where he eventually was shipwrecked on Malta and eventually uh, 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 spent some time in Malta and encouraging the people there. But uh, now he's actually made it to the peninsula of Italy, right? He's, he's there um, and uh, he's just steps away from Rome. Uh, it's been it's been a tough road, so to speak. Uh, I've already mentioned a few of the things that he's gone through. Uh, final goodbyes is another one in Ephesus. Uh, mobs of people trying to kill him. Uh, long arduous sea journey. Never mind the 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 just the storm and all that was entailed, but just the the time it took to get from point A 
to point B. And, and he was going to face Caesar. Caesar uh, at this time was uh, Nero. Uh, if you know anything about Nero, you know he was no friend to the Christians. And it, it develops over time. He, Nero becomes more and more paranoid and eventually uh, is, uh, uh, persecutes Christians. But he was going to uh, face Nero uh, quite, a, quite a rough road and a rough end. But here he is, after a short stop on the shores of Sicily and Syracuse, a little stop on that island, uh, he makes it to the boot of Italy, to the very toe, and from there he, he goes up the coast uh, to this town, Puteoli, and in this town he is invited into the home of believers. Uh, spends seven days a week there. Um, what a, it doesn't say anything about his time in the, with these Christians, but you can imagine how encouraging it was for him. Um, and then after this, he heads up toward Rome. It says they arrived in Rome. They were about 30 miles from Rome uh, and on a crossroads in that famed uh, Appian Way, that famed road of Rome that, that um, uh, you can still walk today. And he's, he meets believers that have come 30 miles from Rome to meet him. They've walked 30 miles just to, just to meet him and then walk back to Rome with him. And so Paul was encouraged. What was Paul thinking and feeling, do you think, in this moment? And we, we aren't told exactly all that he was feeling, but we can imagine the kind of emotions that he was having, right? He was full of relief, full of wonder, full of fear, full of uncertainty, apprehension, even doubt. But in that, he was probably mixed with hope and thankfulness, right? All of those sort of emotions that we can imagine him having. And it's in this moment that the Lord provides perfectly for what Paul needs. The fellowship of believers. And it's this fellowship, this, this idea of the fellowship of believers that I want to focus on today. I think um, the whole entire book of Acts has really been a story of the development of the church, right? It's been starting in Jerusalem just before the days of Pentecost, that small little band praying in the upper room, and then Pentecost comes and there's this sort of influx of believers into the, into the body of Christ, and from there it moves out to Samaria, to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually into Greece, into Rome. Here it's, it's going everywhere out, but it's the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers. It's the story of that. And this, the tail end of the book of Acts, is still about that, the fellowship of believers. And I want to I think about this, the gift of fellowship. The gift, as we sit here together, the gift of fellowship. Um, and, and the gift of fellowship that gives and receives encouragement. When we come together, one of the, the main aspects of our fellowship with one another is that we can encourage one another. We find encouragement from one another and we give and receive encouragement from one another. And so as we think about this gift of fellowship and, and the, the benefits of it in terms of encouragement, my hope is that as, as those gather together in fellowship as the body of Christ, we might result uh, in thanksgiving and praise to God. Why? Just for the wonder of it. The wonder of the fellowship. The wonder of the church. Uh, we'll come to that. Maybe you think that's a bit of a strong statement. <laughs> Maybe this doesn't cause you wonder. 
at all. In fact, maybe this causes you hardship and pain, or has in the past, or you have some uncertainty about it. Uh, I, I, I know from experience how the church cannot be a place of wonder, but a place of pain. And yet, the fact that you're here this morning says something. There's something to this. Something to the gathering that we have here. And I want us to think about it. My prayer is that by the end, you might see at least a bit of the wonder of what we have in the body of Christ. So, I'm going to do this in three ways this morning. First, the gift of fellowship. I want to focus on that for a bit. Secondly, the the mutual encouragement of fellowship. And then thirdly, the wonder of it all. The wonder of fellowship. So first, the gift of fellowship. Paul, throughout his journeys, uh, has enjoyed fellowship. We've seen this throughout from the very earliest moments of his conversion, when he was brought into the house of Ananias, uh, and his sight was restored. He was in fellowship immediately. What an amazing thing. He was blinded by the Lord Jesus, and yet he was immediately brought into fellowship. And soon after that, he went to meet with the other apostles, and he was brought in to fellowship. And from that point on, it was a story of him ministering in Antioch. Do you remember way back with with Barnabas? Barnabas went and sought Paul out in Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch and said, this man needs to be here to help enjoy the fellowship. And then from there, they went off on their missionary journeys across all of Asia Minor and Greece. And each place they came into contact with people, they spread the gospel and the the God of grace entered into the lives and hearts of people and the church was established and Paul enjoyed fellowship in the midst of all of that. And you can see that as he goes back through the various churches uh, that he establishes, how he enjoys fellowship. So that by the end, when they get to Ephesus, you remember, he couldn't go back all the way to Ephesus, but the church came to him and they wept together as Paul said his goodbyes. You remember that scene? Then they go off to Jerusalem and enjoy the fellowship there. And even as he went on his journey, uh, on this journey from uh, from. Uh, Israel all the way to Rome on this boat, uh, he's enjoyed fellowship. He has uh, Aristarchus, uh, somebody he's been a companion of him since, uh, since Greece. And he has Luke, right? the eyewitness account here of his journeys. He has fellowship. And even as they come from port to port, uh, his Roman guard, his Roman centurion, allows him to go and to meet with believers. An amazing gift of God that you have this fellowship even throughout his imprisonment and journey. Uh, And here, once again, Paul is greeted as he comes into port by fellow believers. The only thing that's a bit different is that here, these Christians have little to no connection with Paul. He, he wrote a letter, we can go back and we can read Romans, in the very first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes and says, I hope to someday meet you. That's my plan, that's my goal, but he hasn't yet. And he was kind of sending a letter to them, hearing of their conversion, hearing of their establishment in the Lord, but he doesn't know them personally. But nevertheless, without ever seeing these people, he enters their homes. First place he enters, for full week. Remember, last week was all about hospitality. Well, this week, I want to focus on another aspect, if you will, about fellowship. His fellowship and hospitality. 
And then, of course, after departing Puteoli on the coast and heading up toward Rome and coming within 30 miles of Rome, he is once again greeted by believers from Rome itself. Folks who've traveled days, 30 miles, days to come to him and to help usher him into that quote-unquote eternal city. I wonder what Paul's Roman centurion guard thought of everything. Now, if it's, if it's uh, Julius, the one who was with him throughout his sea journey, the, I'm sure he said something like, of course he has friends he's never met in Rome. That would be Paul. That would be every experience I've had up to this moment is some crazy, miraculous thing as he's coming into the, the presence of the Christian community, as Julius is coming to understand the nature of God himself, I'm sure he said, of course Paul is met by friends he doesn't even know. I wouldn't expect anything less. Maybe it wasn't Julius. Maybe he was relieved at some point. It was a new guard. And they simply wondered at the strangeness of this whole event. Each step of the journey is marked by this fellowship of believers. Now, I think there are days for everyone here when we say to ourselves, life would be easier alone. Days, moments. For some of us, we're very relational, we can't really imagine that, but I know in the worst of moments you think, I just don't want to be around people. I don't want to deal with the messiness of relationships, the hurt, the sin, the failures, the disappointments that go along with being involved with others. Maybe if it was just me and God, everything would be better. And again, maybe it's just a fleeting feeling, momentary thing that you feel. But we feel that sometimes, don't we? I get it. I've been there. i felt that. The problem with such a view is that it's just not true. It doesn't work. Wait. Don't get me wrong. There are people who attempt to live solitary, lonely lives. People who go off into the wilderness and, and, or even in the cities who become reclusive to avoid any sort of meaningful relationships. That People do this thing. Um, but it's certainly the exception. And it doesn't work. As humans, we were made for relationship. A baby, when it's born, that is neglected, does not survive. From the moment that baby is, is connected to her mother or her father, there's, a, there's an intimacy and relationship. This is how we were made. And sometimes, uh, uh, you know, even in our darkest moments of longing to be alone, the reality is if we probe our heart deep enough, what we're really longing for is relationship without the brokenness. Significance without all the mess. Being known and being loved, right? Now, I realize that the sin, the brokenness of relationships, it happens in our familiar relationships, it happens in our work relationships, but it can also happen in church relationships too. I know that. I've experienced that. And sometimes the last place, even though we know we want relationship, the last place we want to be is among fellow believers. Because we've been burned. We've been hurt. 
Yet, I want to I suggest, despite those feelings, whether based on some real hurt or some perceived hurt or whatever it is, despite it all, I, I, I think, I, I know, I don't think, I, I want you to know that fellowship of believers, this, what we have, is a gift. It's a gift of God. Now, if you're one of those who have strong negative feelings right now and you're asking in your head, how, Rob, how is it a gift? How is this a good thing? Um, I want to describe it this way. First and foremost, our fellowship has been forged in heaven. Our fellowship has been forged in heaven. Uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer that we find in John 17, it's the prayer that he made to his heavenly Father while he was enjoying waning hours on earth with his disciples. Do you remember that? In the upper room before he goes to the cross, he turns his eyes heavenward and he prays. But it's really interesting. These, These... Besties, these friends, whatever you want to call them, that he had here on earth, these disciples were about to abandon him. One of them had already left to deny him, to to turn him over, uh, not just deny him, but to 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 actually uh, turn him over to the authorities. Peter, of course, would deny him, and others would just run away. And in this moment. Jesus turns his eyes heavenward and he prays. And hear these words from John 17, chapter 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them. And you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Did you catch that unity stuff? Not just that they would get along, right? Not just that we as a church would get along and be uh, amenable to one another and, and kind to one another, but no, but that we would be one just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in the triune Godhead. That, that, that blows our comprehension. We can't grasp the kind of oneness that, that Jesus is talking about here. But this is the union or fellowship or oneness that's not dependent on our compatibility or our social or economic status or our personalities or our ethnic makeup or our political affiliations or our hobbies and interests or anything else on earth. But this is a fellowship that is based on the galvanizing power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Forges us into one. We are bound together. And when diverse peoples come together, when we call each other sister and brother, when we lay our lives down for one another, when believers walk 60 miles round trip to greet a fellow believer they've never met, when we do all those things, we are bearing witness to the glory of the gospel. As we reflect the oneness that is guaranteed, that is ours, that is forged in heaven, when we live it out in this life together with one another, we reflect to the world the oneness. That's exactly what Jesus says here. He says, 
that they may, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We bear witness to the power of the cross. And this is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that means any encouragement about being united to Him, any comfort from the love of Christ, any participation, that is our union, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these things are yours. He's not saying if you have these. He's saying if this is true of you, but it is true of you because you've been united to Christ by faith. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now I realize, I realize both in Jesus' prayer and in Paul's exhortation here, that there is this, in theological words, already not yet reality, right? We, we are already one, but oftentimes we don't exhibit it. I, I realize that. We are one in Christ. And yet the prayer of Jesus and the exhortation of Paul is that we would reflect it. So our fellowship is a gift because it comes from God, having been forged in heaven despite its incompleteness here on earth. And when we display our oneness, we declare the power of Christ in the world. There's a second way in which fellowship is a gift. And this brings me to my second point. It's a gift because, like all good gifts, there are benefits, right? Uh, you know, when I, there's always a gift that you receive at Christmas. You're very thankful for the thoughtfulness of the gift, but you, it's not something you are interested in. It has no benefit to you, but you are thankful for the thoughtfulness of it. It's a, a gift, I guess you would call it, but it's not a gift, right? But when you receive a gift that you've been longing for, something that you have you know, in your mind been thinking about and your loved one goes out and buys you that thing and hands it to you, it's, the benefits of it are, you know, it's thank, you're thankful to the person for the thoughtfulness and all those things, but there are real benefits. Like, you enjoy it. You, you, that's just the nature of a gift. Well, through fellowship we have gifts. There are many benefits. But there's one in particular that I want to talk about, which I think the text talks about, and that is, through fellowship we find encouragement. Mutual encouragement. Encouragement. We have other things, mutual joy, shared sorrow, varied strength, wisdom, gifts. Those are all things that are, that are ours as we, as we enjoy fellowship. But I want us to think particularly about encouragement. Here in our text, Paul leaves the fellowship he was enjoying in Puteoli, right? He was there for seven days. And he sets off on the final leg of his journey to Rome. The text says, The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Took courage. Paul took it. Back in Acts chapter 23, when Paul was spirit was desiring to go to Rome, and now he is sort of in Jerusalem or on the road, uh, the Lord said to him in a vision, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so as he approaches Rome, 
remembering the words of Jesus to take courage, and he sees these believers coming towards him as he, as he approaches the city, he takes courage. He's strengthened. Now, at first blush, it doesn't seem all that surprising. Uh, in fact, we could put ourselves in Paul's shoes, and we too would be probably feel a sense of encouragement if folks came out to us on the last leg of, a, of an extremely arduous journey. Uh, uh, we would take courage. Uh, I, I am not a runner at all. Um, I'm always impressed by people who will run marathons or half marathons. I had a, you know, I've had friends that do like crazy, like run the Iditarod, crazy things. Do people do that sort of thing? But there, there are. I'm not one. But in my younger days, I would run the Manchester Road Race. Some of you may have run the Manchester Road Race in the past, or have gone to visit the Manchester Road Race. Um, for me, it was long enough. It was a long enough race. And about halfway through the race, you're going up a pretty steep hill, a steep. You're going uphill, and you're getting tired, you're getting worn out, and you come down the hill, and it feels like you just keep going and going and going and going. And then you come down Center Street in Manchester, and the crowd starts to get bigger, and then you turn left onto Main Street. I don't know if you've been Manchester Main Street, big wide boulevard, and it's, uh, it's very lovely Main Street, big. And lined on Main Street are hundreds and maybe thousands of people all cheering you on. And I would say, I don't know, Seth, how far is it, a quarter mile long? Something like that. <laughs> right? But when you're there, you think, and everybody's cheering you on, you're thinking, I can sprint now. <laughs> And so you start sprinting because everybody's encouraging you and cheering you on and then you're sprinting and you keep sprinting and you're thinking, this is a little longer than a sprint, at least for me. But you get encouraged. For Paul, it was a bit like that. He was coming to the end and those last few miles, his spirits were lifted and he was encouraged to press on. And we can imagine that. That's not hard to believe. But in another way, this encouragement is quite surprising. So that's sort of, we get it. You know, people cheering you on at the end of the long journey. We get that. But there's another way in which this is quite surprising. After all, Paul has been the encourager. Throughout his entire ministry, he would go from church to church. After he plants them, he would go back and he would encourage them. Now, Barnabas was the encourager, the son of encouragement. But Paul would do this as well. He would go back and encourage the saints. Anywhere he was where people were in trouble, he would remind them if they're in a ship, you know, the ship's about to go down and they're all saying, what's going to become of us? He says, come on, let's eat. You know, let's not worry. The Lord is going to provide. We're going to make it through. Uh, he was an encourager. All throughout. And now here he is, needing encouragement at the very moment when you would think that he would have been like, well, if I've made it through everything else, shipwrecks, snake bites, plots to kill me, mobs, uh, almost near-death stonings, if I've made it this far, a little walk to Rome isn't that big of a deal. And yet, Paul is in need of encouragement. I think there's something to this, something to take note of. There's not one person here who doesn't need encouragement. The Christian life is hard. We all need encouragement. And this is why fellowship is so essential. 
It's only by being brought together that we can, in fact, encourage one another, that we can come alongside one another. And there are all sorts of reasons we need encouragement, aren't there? The Christian life is difficult. It's arduous. Like Paul's journey to Rome, it's full of obstacles and pitfalls. It's full of pain and sorrow. It's full of sin and all the effects of, this, of sin. It's just plain exhausting. You've been there on the Christian walk. You're just exhausted. How easily we are discouraged. One way in which we're easily discouraged is in that we think no one struggles with the sin the way we do, right? We think our sin, my sin, is unique. And I can't share it with anybody because if people found out about my sin, they would, they would shun me, they, would, they wouldn't want nothing to do with me. The reality is quite different. We're all broken, needy sinners. All of us. Every single one of us here. We all struggle with common sins. And when we share our sins and struggles with one another, confessing to one another, we are allowing others to share in our struggles as we share in theirs, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. To encourage one another toward love and good works. You can take that next step of faith, brother. Sister... It's okay, I get it, I know where you're at. Let's walk together. And so it's through our mutual struggle against sin that we find encouragement. It's interesting, the language here for courage is not the most common word for encouragement in the New Testament. This word, it carries the sense of one taking heart, of being bolstered or strengthened. And it's from the perspective of the subject. In other words, Paul took courage. It was a, it was a noun. He took this thing and you know, he, he was strengthened. Um, uh, but the word that's most often used for encouragement in the New Testament, and, and we get it in English, right? Courage and encouragement in that little, that little prefix in the front of the word uh, means that it's something towards another, right? It's in, like pushing courage into something or into another. Encouragement. We use that en language um, to, to to get at that sort of moving towards another. In the Greek, though, the word encourage means to come alongside. In other words, Paul takes heart or he takes courage and strength. From these folks literally coming alongside of him in his journey. All they did was come out and meet him. We aren't told anything else. He thanked God and took courage because they walked those 30 miles to meet him. To come alongside him. And to walk with him. As we're in fellowship with one another, we come alongside each other. And this is the gift of fellowship. This is the nature of it. So, I have to ask the question, how do we encourage one another? Right? Okay. Yes, you come alongside them, but what does that look like? Well, how do we do this? Firstly, we have to live life together. We have to live life together. To know each other beyond the pleasantries of Sunday morning. We have to pray together, to lift up one another in prayer. We have to grow in our knowledge and love of God together, to speak the word to one another and challenging one another in the truth, to walk in faithfulness. We need to grow up together. We have to serve one another. 
That means laying our lives down for one another. And maybe one of the hardest ones we have to bear with one another. Overlooking sin, forgiving sin and offense. And it does mean we have to weep with one another and rejoice and give thanks to God with one another. And finally, what we do together as a church, as a people of God, as a body of fellowship, we have to point one another to Jesus. There's that beautiful picture in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 where Paul paints a picture of a race. Look at all these witnesses, these people who have gone before you in the race, who've suffered all sorts of things. Now you need to pick up every every, thing that clings to you, every weight and, and thing that you stumble over, and you need to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. And as we come together, we do that, pointing each other, look to Jesus. And this is my final point in conclusion. There is a wonder in our fellowship. A wonder. Everywhere Paul goes, he finds Christian fellowship. And as we've noted, this is a gift of God. There was no personal relationships that Paul had with folks in Rome, and yet they came out to him. They loved him. They came alongside of him. And what does it say that he, had, he took courage? But what does it say right before that? He thanked God. Whenever I think of Christian fellowship, and when I speak of Christian fellowship, of course I'm I'm simply talking about the church, the body of Christ, and I can't help but wonder at the power and mercy and love of God. Scripture describes those outside of the church, outside of Christ, as strangers and aliens. Uh, Ephesians 2.12 says it this way, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's the, that's the nature of, of the person outside of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Rob. I don't really understand what you're saying. What do you mean that, I, that I'm a stranger, I'm an alien, that I'm outside of Christ? Well, all of us here were at one time strangers and aliens, outsiders. And all of us tried at our, in our best to cobble together relationships in various ways outside of Christ, through our earthly families, through our natural affinities, etc. Yet, if we're honest with ourselves in those moments, we were constantly longing for something more. And maybe that's you today. You, you're longing for something deeper, some significance, some meaning, some belonging to be a part of something greater than yourself, to feel as though you are known and you are loved without condition, to be accepted despite all that mess inside of you. And this is the mystery of the Gospel. Ephesians 2 goes on after saying you were once these things. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in its ordinance that, we might create, that He might create in Himself one new man 
in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, and this is the heart of it, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a lot there. We could spend an entire another sermon just explicating that piece of Scripture. But friends, the wonder of Christian fellowship is that not only were we brought into mutually encouraging relationships with one another. Did you hear all that language of being brought together, being made one? Despite all our vast differences, and as I look out on this congregation, I think about all the vast differences that are there between us, and yet we're one. That, that's a small thing compared to the gulf between us and God that Christ bridged. When He suffered death, when His blood was shed and His body was broken for us, when that happened, that great gulf between us was, was obliterated so that we have access to the Father. Not only that, it says we are His dwelling place, the place where God dwells with His people. His Spirit is called the paraclete. Well, what does that mean, Rob? Well, parakaleo is the word I've been talking about in terms of encouragement. The word that means coming alongside. The Spirit of God is the one who comes alongside us and makes fellowship with us perfectly. And because of that, we have fellowship with one another. What a marvelous reality. And as we display that reality more and more so through our fellowship with one another, We can't help but take courage to find strength as we enjoy the oneness and the love and the mutuality here on earth, even as we enjoy that oneness and mutuality with our Father in Heaven through Christ. We can't help but be encouraged. So my hope is that this morning we marvel and give thanks just as Paul did for the way He brings us into fellowship, the marvelous fellowship with His Son and the marvelous fellowship we have with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that oftentimes we don't, we don't display that kind of marvelous fellowship, uh, that we are fearful creatures, that we often are afraid of relationship even within the context of the church, but we thank You that this is a reality, that You've bound us together in Christ that you've brought us into relationship with yourself and with one another. And so we ask that you would help us more and more to enter into those mutually encouraging relationships that we would bear with one another and bear one another's burdens and walk beside one another and rejoice and weep and all the things that go along with being in life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would help us to do that here at CCPC. 
I thank you for the encouragement that I have already received that has that has been on display here. I thank you for the way in which you work in through uh, this church, and I pray that you would continue to do that so that the light of your gospel might shine, shine forward. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.